Hi, you're listening to the second episode of the podcast, Challenging the Passport Privilege. If you're a third country national who's been facing discriminatory attitudes in the European Union, or you just simply want to be aware of what individuals from the Global South go through, tag along. For this episode, I interviewed three people who hold underprivileged passports, who work at academic institutions, and who are cautious of their status in the EU as third country nationals. The first guest is Dmitry Kochenov, and he's from Russia. Dmitry leads the rule of law research group at CU Democracy Institute in Budapest, and he's teaching global citizenship at the Department of Legal Studies at CU in Vienna. Besides, his research areas include rule of law, citizenship, and different aspects of EU constitutionalism. He also specializes in the EU citizenship law, citizenship by investment, and even his super famous book is called Citizenship. So he is an expert, and listen carefully what he has to say. Dmitry thinks that citizenship is not a good thing, and I totally agree with him. And he also claims that passport apartheid has to end, which I also agree with. Check out the interview. Well, I was, I was born in the Soviet Union, so obviously I face uh, this kind of obstacle. When, when you travel on a Soviet passport, which is uh, endorsed the Russian Federation, uh, when uh, nobody has ever heard of uh, uh, this state existing and in the beginning of the 90s, you start thinking, like, why am I mistreated everywhere? But then, as you as as you uh, read uh, the basic history of ideas about the emergence of individualism and the emergence of of the idea of merit and individual salvation in in, in theology, uh, you suddenly start realizing that what what we call citizenship now is simply a neo feudal uh, rethinking of blood bonds. Uh, between between the status of a person and particular rights and liabilities that are assigned to that person to that status. So obviously, uh, now that there is no official racism in the majority in the majority of uh, constitutional systems, citizenship is replacing it. Because if, and this is this is what my book in part is about. It offers a different a different view on race discrimination that's through citizenship discrimination because. Uh, when when the whole world was five six empires, plus some odd states in the Caribbean and odd states in Latin America, then obviously uh, rights would be apportioned depending on your origins in terms of the pigmentation of your skin. So uh, if if someone was black, British passport didn't matter. He still couldn't or she still couldn't enter Canada. That still couldn't settle in South Africa. Australia was out of reach, and then the U.S. followed, etc. So. Race was the main the main factor, and then once once decolonization happens and everybody's free, and international authority tells us all the all the states are absolutely equal, how wonderful! Uh, then suddenly states which are inhabited by the people who didn't have any rights because of race uh, issue citizenships which don't which don't give any rights. So now now we just hear that it's not about race anymore; it's about some other factors, blah blah blah. And then, of course, there are the, the haves and the haves not, the have nots of the world. So it's a, it's it's an obvious uh, it's an obvious part of, of of the story of the world, which is which is completely ignored. And then I came across uh, Milanovic's work, which is absolutely amazing, uh, who teaches us that uh, global inequalities are uh, determined by spatial localization rather than class structures. Uh, and and this is this is fundamentally important for uh, for keeping people in poverty then that that you would put them in a cage for instance if you proclaim that someone is Liberian then no matter what that person does no matter what what the person's aspirations and talents are uh, it's it's only citizenship and race by proxy uh, that uh, that basically assign no chance uh, to that particular life uh, so then citizenship uh, and this is the this is the main story that the book traces. The citizenship from the main factor of ensuring that there is no discrimination on the basis of class becomes the key tool of preserving and reinforcing precisely the same discrimination, but on the basis of uh, spatial localization. So poor countries uh, remain poor 
because poor people cannot travel and rich countries are rich, but they're behind the barbed wire wall. These walls we don't see usually, because if you if you take your US passport, whatever your Dutch or your French passport, then you're welcome everywhere. But the other guys in those places where you where you want to visit, they are they're entirely excluded. And I call this passport apartheid because it's uh, it's it's not not only because it's related to race, but it's because it's ascribed in the same way as race. You don't choose, you don't choose your parents, and then and then you suffer as much, if not if not if not more. Do you think? Um, race discrimination still exists to non-white third country nationals when it comes to employment in the EU? Like when they immigrate, are they more discriminated or equally discriminated uh, than others? Well, of course, of course there is race discrimination. The, 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 the Fundamental Rights Agency even releases statistics, I believe, uh, but it's officially prohibited in the EU while it's not prohibited on the basis of your citizenship. Which means that if you don't have the right citizenship, if you're not if you're not British or French in the EU, but you are black, uh, then it's legal to tell you bugger off to your own home, uh, whatever that might be ascribed to you, even if you have never visited before, uh, and uh, officially we're all uh, complying with the law right? because we're not discriminating on the basis of race, uh, but in practice, citizenship stands as a proxy for for race discrimination in plenty of this kind of relations, and this is and this is something that uh, always gets uh, uh, it, well. It, it's it's never in the in, 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 it's never the focal point of any citizenship story because citizenship is usually about glory. It's about it's about liberation. It's about freedom. But when when freedom is used precisely in order to achieve a status connected to no rights and all the liabilities, then you start thinking, is this, is this really freedom or something else? And then, and, uh, then the, main, uh, the main realistic uh, assessment of citizenship is to say that it's not only about rights, it's also about, uh, about uh, really annoying liabilities that will uh, haunt you your whole life, no matter where you go in the world. Because once a Liberian, forever Liberian, unless you, you are entitled to naturalize somewhere. So in France, you will be mistreated. In the US, you will be mistreated. And of course, in Liberia, you will be, you will be mistreated because the country doesn't give you any rights. Do you think this topic is going to be trending anytime soon? Now, maybe with COVID-19, that passport situations changed and all those countries that had passport privilege, all those uh, nationalities, it, their passport privilege is also declining. Why is this topic not trending? Is it because it's not coming from the West and it's coming from poor countries and poor nationalities? There is no power to set the agenda in the countries uh, or among the citizens for whom it's a problem. And then if you, if you look at scholars, if you look, if you look at politicians, all those, all those who have a voice probably to say something about it, they already have the elite citizenship. So and I, I surveyed uh, the, the main voices in citizenship literature. The last, uh, the, the last important scholar who didn't have an elite citizenship was Aristotle, who was a, who was a metic in Athens. Uh, so he knew that he didn't have any rights. And he had a critical perspective. He was asking himself, like, what, what is this really? And he was looking at different countries. And uh, unlike Aristotle, the majority of uh, the majority of scholars today uh, only have a one-sided view of citizenship as a way not to let the outsiders in, and then it's considered to be the starting point and the end point, something that is excellent, something that citizenship is designed uh, to do in the, in the name of democracy, etc. While of course the the absurd the, the absurd thing here is that uh, democracy doesn't play a role in framing citizenship at all, because, because the majority of, of countries in the world have never been democracies and will never be, and now they're in decline, and the absolute majority of citizens in the world uh, will never have any experiences, uh, experience of living in democracy. And I'm not even counting like uh, some kind of hybrid regimes like Putin's Russia and, uh, and stuff like this. Uh, Simply outrageous autocracies are inhabited by, by millions and millions and millions of people. So then if you use democracy as a justification, which would, democracy, which is an exception, as a justification for the preservation of a horrible, unjust, and truly punishing status, which everybody has in the world, 
pretty much everybody. And then it's a non-segmentor because it's not, uh, it's, it's probably too, too short a cut uh, in order to be really convincing. Let's imagine there are no borders and people can freely move back and forth. Then what's going to happen? Or well, what type of solution do you see in this in this issue? What's going okay if we? It's end- not a, so. It's it's related to borders, of course, but it's not only about borders. It's a it's it's about it's about the kind of the kind of rights you can imagine for yourself and what they are based on. So if uh, and and that that's why there is a uh, there is a growing literature on compensatory citizenships because there are plenty of uh, plenty of really wealthy Chinese people, for instance who don't really want to immigrate anywhere, but they simply have this creepy citizenship, which is Chinese, which doesn't give them any rights in the world. So they have to upgrade it. They have to uh, endure four years in Canada, for instance, to naturalize there out of all places, just in order to return back home with a, with a passport, which, which is of higher quality. And that's what explains uh, investment migration. That's, that's what explains all these law firms that help you to look, to look up your ancestry. Then suddenly you can, you can become whatever, Albanian, Irish, whatever you think will help, depending on what your current situation is. That's how that's how Italy can make uh, uh, can make almost 10 million new Italians uh, since 1992 in Latin America, etc., etc., etc. So, so citizenship is not necessarily connected to uh, residence or presence in a particular in a particular spot uh, on, on on Earth. It's about it's about the freedom of considering the world your own. So, if you're if you're French and if you are slightly less short-sighted than the majority of your compatriots. Then, then you will be interested in what's going on in the Netherlands, what's going on uh, on, on Cyprus or even in Russia and Japan, and you will be able to experience that. But unfortunately, if, you, if you're from the, I don't know, from Madagascar uh, or from Sri Lanka, then, then the situation is radically different. You can be extremely interested, but you will be locked. And, uh, and, and this is the position which you cannot choose or vote for or vote against. And then anywhere you go to complain, you, you will hear, but isn't this natural? All the states are equal. But unfortunately, equal states don't give equal rights. I don't think COVID-19 changes anything in reality. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, because uh, the, the world will come back to normal sooner or later. And uh, if you... And all this, all this hyped travel privilege is uh, is secondary to the right to settle in a particular place which actually which actually grants you grants you important rights and opportunities so if you if you are locked by the virus and by the passport in madagascar compared with being locked by the virus in the united states of america it's it's very difficult to compare the two and then the, the different healthcare different help etc so it it connects with uh, with how states perform yeah, uh, which means that uh, this temporary temporary uh, deprivations, which Americans experienced, for instance, when when Europe closed its borders de facto for non-European citizens because of the virus, under the pretext of the virus, uh, this only underlines uh, the fact that they considered it so normal to be absolutely welcome, uh, while, for instance, an Indian person would never consider it so normal. Or, or an Uzbekistani person, and that's precisely the problem we're talking about. So the fact that the fact that Americans are suddenly worse off than five years ago uh, doesn't mean that anything has changed for the absolute majority of the of, of the world's population. So this is just an illustration, and I have I have zero compassion or zero kind of tears to shed uh, for for the troubles that uh, that Americans or the, those few Americans who wanted to travel actually had to face. And we know very well that that in, in, in a year or even less, uh, all this uh, all this will be bad bad dreams, bad memories, uh, and the world will be back to normal. And that normal is against the absolute majority of the citizens of the world. So what, what do you think is a solution then? Like how, how would someone tackle this problem nowadays of ending this passport privilege? First of all, first of all, raising awareness. So I think this, and this is why I wrote a, a small popular booklet basically. And then 
I keep on publicizing it a little bit. But of course, uh, it's very difficult to be praised for such a work. So, uh, so I, I faced really an, an astonishing uh, wave of criticism, but all this criticism is baseless because, uh, because it's basically uh, repeating the mantras on which aristocracy would be based, the global aristocracy of the passport super rich. Uh, in order to what were they saying? Like, what does it mean? Against the plight of the of the passport poor, and uh, and this is not uh, the, this is not the starting point that that I want to adopt because this precisely perpetuates the problem. And then uh, in in terms of in terms of what to do, Milanovic has a, has an excellent example when he refers to the United Arab Emirates and and uh, Qatar, the, the Gulf states, where anyone can come but no one can get citizenship. And this is, this is simply an illustration that citizenship, in fact, is not important once we speak about borders. It's, what, it's how you use it as a pretext in order to lock yourself in with your, with your good friends, uh, other citizens whom you like. So in this sense, uh, Dubai is, is the direct opposite of the United States, where it's easy to naturalize, but it's impossible to get in if you come from uh, from the majority of, of of the poorest states in in the world. While in the in the United United Arab Emirates, of course, you can easily get in and you can do whatever you want. You can build your life here. You can find you can find your hopes. You, you can get your dreams come true there. But uh, you will face a problem if you want to naturalize. And ultimately. Uh, citizenship then is the second step of, of inclusion, which can also turn into the first step. But uh, it doesn't necessarily have to play this uh, uh, harsh role, which is playing to which it is playing today in, in the world, which is which is good news. It yeah. means that all those who say that any kind of arguments against citizenship necessarily bring bring about anarchy and the destruction of the world as we know it. No, it's not true, <laughs> but uh, it, it does destroy uh, the, the sense of normalcy when we speak about overwhelming privilege, which is transferred by blood. And in this sense, uh, the fight against citizenship today is exactly the same as the fight that citizenship helped to wage against aristocracy and class, uh, uh, rigid class structures. Uh, which happened uh, two, two, three hundred years ago, uh, starting with uh, well, starting with the French Revolution is the greatest example. It started earlier, of course. So citizenship as a tool of liberation suddenly becomes uh, the tool of enslavement uh, for again for the majority. It liberated majorities at the local scale, and then it enslaved majorities at the global scale. I also wanted to ask you about the the quality of nationality index. Uh, you don't measure index th- this index specifically based on the number of countries a specific country can enter with their passport. So there are some other considerations or? Just measuring the number of countries makes no sense because the countries are so different. You cannot measure, you cannot pretend that the US is the same as Albania or as, uh, uh, as Antigua even some, yeah. or some, some non-independent uh, territory which has its own border controls. Uh, this is what IATA would measure. This is what uh, Handling Partners releases as, uh, as the index of passport uh, passport quality. The H, how was it called? So, so some kind of passport uh, passport privilege index that doesn't work as simply. And uh, in particular, this is because the majority of countries you wouldn't like to visit. We know we know that everybody wants to go to the EU. Everybody wants to go to the US. So simply by building a map that, that shows you uh, which, which citizenship allows you to enter those two spaces without any visas already sends a powerful, powerful signal as to, as to citizenship quality. But I look at settlement as well, and this is fundamentally important. So the majority of countries uh, issue you with a citizenship that allows you to live, a, to live a life without any questions asked in several other jurisdictions. So mm-hmm. if you are... I don't know if, if you're American, you can you can go to to Albania, for instance, as I discovered as part of that research, because there is a unilateral declaration by Albania, and it's it's implemented in the law that they always welcome the American brothers. So you can you can simply settle, you can start a company, you can do whatever. You don't need any any residence permits, you don't need any visas. But then the the most classical classical examples are. Uh, the likes of the European Union or the, the the Eurasian Economic Union in the former Soviet bloc, where a Belarusian citizen is treated like a Russian in the Russian territory, 
or the same in ECOWAS uh, territory in, in Africa. And there are similar, similar unions in, in the Caribbean as well and in, in the Latin America, plus bilateral agreements like Australia and New Zealand. It's extremely easy to get, uh, to get to New Zealand with an Australian passport in order to settle and to start living a life uh, and vice versa, as opposed to getting to Australia, say, with an Afghani passport or even an American passport. So this is something that is factored in, which means that uh, this idea that the world is actually split into separate compartments based on the, the political map as we see it is wrong. It doesn't work like this uh, from the point of view of citizenship. Because, for instance, with the Russian citizenship, you can go, you can go to 10 countries and settle there. So, the, so the, the, the configuration is totally different. With a Swiss citizenship, you can go to 48 countries uh, among the richest countries in the world. And then Switzerland suddenly gets inflated. And then we can, we can continue infinitely almost because the, the majority of countries around the world issue citizenships like this. So it's not, it's not one-to-one. And this, and this is something that, so this is something that I discovered while doing the index. And this is something that allows us to question the main mantras of, of the connection between citizenship and democracy. Because uh, you can only speak about citizenship as a tool for democratic representation if you assume that your citizenship only works in the territory where your laws actually, uh, actually regulate anyone's life. And this is not the case. So if a Belarusian came to Moscow, and he has a right based on Belarusian citizenship, then of course there is this right, while it totally governs his or her life, doesn't translate into any kind of political representation, even if we think that democracy is important for citizenship. In the Russian case, probably it's not. And in the majority of other cases we would survey all around the world, it wouldn't be, uh, which means that... Uh, it doesn't make sense par excellence, but then once we start scrutinizing this, this idea that there is a self-governing community which issues you with a citizenship, and then once you're a citizen, uh, you, can live in, you can live with this community and, and govern together with all the others, this doesn't work either, because, because a Swiss, based on his Swiss citizenship, can choose one of 48 countries and will not be invited to vote or to do, to do anything particularly democratic in the formal sense. Yeah, of course, you can write an op-ed for the New York Times, and all the world will read it, and it might uh, it might trigger deep changes in Albania or in Switzerland. But uh, this is not how formal democracy works in in, in the most classical and the most uh, well-sold uh, democratic textbooks. So it's a it's a totally different story, which means that the index allows to see the world behind the mantras of the political map. And this idea of the connection between democracy and citizenship, it illustrates precisely why citizenship can be a problem rather than a solution uh, to, the, to the issues which we want resolved. And this is, I think, the added value of this index. That's why I'm, I'm very happy always when, when, when people cite it. Of course, they cite it next to, next to other similar, uh, other similar attempts. And I can I can speak for hours and hours as to why those those are worse than mine, but we need to we need to break this uh, ideological starting point that all the citizenships of the world are equal. They are not, and we all know it. But uh, admitting that is is very very problematic for those who fetishize citizenship as uh, as something of uh, inherent value. It doesn't have any inherent value at all, besides oppressing the majority of the world's population. Uh, yeah, COVID is not permanent, but Brexit is permanent. So what do you think now UK nationals being called third country nationals in Europe? What do, what do you think, what type of dynamics it's going to cause? It's a wonderful question because uh, it, uh, Brexit is an illustration that it's very easy to lose all the rights <laughs> and they will not come back. And we have, uh, we have plenty of such, uh, such illustration, illustrations in the past. And most notably, and uh, this is not a parallel that is frequently made, but this is how decolonization was frequently experienced by the majority of not white populations and empires. Because if you, if you go to Suriname today and you ask, you ask anyone in the street, would you like a Dutch passport? The answer would always be yes, of course, because instead of a rightless and, and powerless uh, of, the, of the third world, you will immediately be upgraded to someone who is who is by virtue of the passport welcome in with. And of course, uh, of course, it's very easy to realize if you're there. 
and and there are plenty of heartbreaking stories of that sort. So Brits now experience exactly the same what uh, what plenty of their own colonial sub subjects have experienced when they suddenly realize that their own new democratic and free passports before the dictatorships come in uh, are absolutely unusable and, and that they come with no rights whatsoever. So now British passport is akin to a Moroccan one. It, it's, it's, of, it's of zero use in the European Union. Well, it's slightly better than a Moroccan one because you don't get the visa-free access with, with the Moroccan one. Okay, so it's, it's like Bosnia, it's like, it's like uh, Albania. While before it was uh, it was an absolute non-discrimination guarantee uh, throughout the, the bigger chunk of land on the continent. So it's a tragedy. And the democracies can produce tragedies just as uh, they can solve tragedies as well, uh, solve problems. So this is one of those examples when uh, democracy produced a tragic result. The second guest of the episode is Anil Duman, and she's from Turkey. Anil is an associate professor at the Doctoral School of Political Science, Public Policy, and International Relations of CEO. Her research areas include globalization and inequality, and examining the relationship between refugee influx and living and working conditions in the context of a developing country. As a Turkish national residing in the EU, she has a lot to share. Let's listen to the interview. distinguish between refugees and the labor market uh, immigrants like myself. Uh, I mean, actually, it also matters now that the behavioral uh, terms, but also even bureaucratically, you know, there are a lot of uh, variation. Uh, and I will call it like for labor, high skilled labor market immigrants, uh, there is no overt or explicit discrimination. But for anybody else, I think it is, uh, I mean, I don't have anything to quantify or back it up empirically, but from my very little field research and my own experience, I know that uh, if you are a low-skilled labor market immigrant or a refugee or an asylum seeker, also, you know, intersecting with the uh, nationality and ethnicity, there is discrimination, unfortunately. Um, people coming from um, unwanted and unwelcomed countries to the EU, when they cross these borders illegally, when they are not skilled enough, they come mm -hmm. to the countries um, and there's no accommodation for them. There are no jobs for them. Do you think this whole situation made uh, it difficult for um, um, high-skilled um, uh, individuals that, to come to Europe? I think that's an interesting question because I, I haven't seen much research on like how the refugee inflows in recent years changed the perceptions about high-skilled uh, migrants. I think that will be interesting. But one thing that is very peculiar, and this is something that I'm actually currently working on, on public opinion surveys, like the countries where, I mean, so, you know, obviously this is not indicative of what individual people are thinking, but on average, the countries that are less tolerant, let's say, you know, quote unquote, towards refugees or uh, low-skilled immigrants have always been like that. So it is not about the 2015 influx or, you know, the recent arrivals of the refugees from unwanted countries. And the countries, I mean, there is all... Like, I don't want to sound very pessimistic and, uh, you know, uh, essentialist in that sense, but there is some change, but the change is very slow. So I, I wouldn't say that, or at least my expectation wouldn't be in, the, in a negative direction in the sense that I don't think the refugee influx had much of an impact on what people think about high-skilled immigrants, because still high-skilled immigrants are seen as a labor market necessity, you know, so people do not see them as harmful, but everybody else, you know, they are here stealing, you know, the, the usual spiel. Uh, but for me, the most interesting part is like some of these preferences are quite rigid and uh, have not been, they have been stagnant for decades. 
Yeah. And um, have you faced any sort of indirect or direct discrimination um, as someone for, uh, who comes from Turkey in Europe specifically? That's actually like, I mean, okay, for my personal account, I will say that like Hungary is one of the best places to work as a Turk. <laughs> like there is no discrimination here. And if anything, it is positive discrimination. <laughs> but, uh, I... I, again, like personally have never been persecuted or, you know, subject to uh, negative uh, opinions, openly at least. You know, I don't know what they say behind my back, but, uh, okay, I, I, I don't know how to evaluate this, but there are these implicit assumptions about Turks, right? So I always get this as a compliment that they don't think, oh, they didn't think that I was a Turk, as if, you know, like, mm-hmm. I represent something nice and, you know, the Turks cannot be that. Yeah. Um, so in, not in Hungary, but uh, no. have you, in, yeah, in Austria, for instance. Usually, a- actually, these are the countries where there is a very large Turkish diaspora. So not just Austria, but like, I mean, Germany much less so because, you know, they, they are already exposed to very different <laughs> divergent set of Turks. But like Netherlands, Belgium, you know, I was traveling a lot for EU related projects to many Western European countries. And these quasi compliments were always popping up. Yeah. Um, and you've also... Um... Um, studied, as far as I know, in U.S. Do you think U.S. immigration laws are more lenient towards third country nationals than European laws? Absolutely. Uh, but again, I think this, so I I actually went to U.S. for my Ph.D. in 2000. And then in 2001, you know, September, September 11 happened. So I could see very clearly that there was a change. But even then, even after September 11, I never felt anything negative or discriminatory about the immigration rules or procedures. I think in Europe, like in the Austrian case, for example, as a third country national, uh, one of the problems is that, first of all, they don't clarify what the rules are. So, you know, there is a lot of discretion. So... And in the U.S. case, it was the opposite. From the very beginning, you knew what you have to do, which kind of documents you have to submit, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, And do you think this COVID situation um, changed the dynamics a little bit? Because we saw um, uh, American citizens could not enter Europe. Some um, uh, citizens from developed countries could not go to the countries where they used to go. Uh, Do you think this dynamics... Uh, that are changing now will be, I don't know, will serve like as like an epiphany for people who are from global north? I, I mean, I, I, again, I don't want to sound very pessimistic, but <laughs> I hope so that it will be a turning point, but I'm not seeing a big move in that sense, especially in Europe, especially, you know, this vaccination certificate is very depressing for me because this is just another barrier against mobility, especially from poorer. I mean, obviously, you know, this is not going to affect the majority of the European citizens, but clearly non-European countries. So I, I, again, like, I don't want to sound very uh, negative on this front, but unfortunately, I don't see the COVID facilitating mobility or changing immigration laws in a progressive manner. Yeah. And do what do you think could be a solution to this um, hardships in mobility for those people who are from the global south? Uh, or do you think this will not be acknowledged because um, uh, this discrimination or this problem is not um, uh, pretty like crucial or vital for people of uh, developed countries? So do you think there would be any sort of solution with this? I don't know, like maybe like a universal mobility or like uh, less restrictive measures, something like that. I, I, do, I don't see that in the short run. So we're not going to be having it in five years, for example. But I think there are structural transformations, you know, like the newer generations and 
people today are much more open to the idea of mobility and acceptance of uh, global south coming and working and living with them so i i see actually that it will there will be higher mobility and it will become easier for people to uh, travel but honestly i mean when this will happen or what kind of setbacks along the road we might face that i am uncertain of but i don't see that there will be a reversal and we will go and once again you know erect more barriers on the borders uh, it's just probably much slower than you know people like me who are cosmopolitans uh, support yeah <laughs> and actually one nice thing again because i work on a lot of opinion surveys you know like i i read a lot of uh, 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 what people say in these surveys etc and almost everywhere like there are a few exceptions around the world but almost everywhere even in countries which right now have very restrictive immigration policies people are favoring to uh, have lesser more lenient rules so that that is a very good sign yeah fingers crossed and one last question i want to ask before we run out of time is do you think there are additional characteristics so it's like an intersectional issue like if you're a woman or if you're um of like a sexual a certain sexual orientation or a religious minority or particular skin color do you think this adds um to this sort of discrimination or these characteristics don't matter oh they absolutely matter and i can give you like personal uh experience for that so for example housing market in hungary has been always so easy for me you know the landowners are welcoming and you know they have never uh rejected uh but i heard like horror stories from my indian friends even you know asian friends just because they look different or if you're a muslim or you know any kind of physical appearance that might mm, distinguish you from let's say the white european <laughs> looking whatever that is there is clear i mean so to, i mean i wouldn't call for example it a gender inter intersectionality but gender in the sense that if you wear a headscarf or you know if there's anything about your clothing that identifies your religion yes The third guest is Nihan Albayrak Aydemir, and she's from Turkey as well. She has just completed her PhD from the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Her field of interest includes topics around social identity, migration, religion, refugees, and equality. I came across Nihan from the online event that she organized a few months ago. Your visa is denied. That was the title of the event that obviously caught my attention and the attention of many other colleagues of mine who were all caught off guard for a few seconds because, well, as I told you earlier, the Austrian migration, um, Nihan gives a great insight into the concept of passport privilege within academia and explains how those passport holders from the global south often incur hidden costs and miss out on research and networking opportunities because of their immigration status while living and working in the global north. Also, she talks about additional burdens on global South scholars, especially on those who are women and also those women with headscarves like her. Check out the interview. normally as someone from turkey which is weird because turkey is even considered like part of europe but that's even more interesting because they consider you europe when it comes to their benefits so i remember that uh, i think i was an undergrad and my friend was gonna do an erasmus exchange uh, in netherlands and i went with her just for the first week because we were just going to go around and see. Then I was going to come back and she was going to stay there. And they kept me in the passport line. They didn't, uh, like, they didn't pass me. So she went and I waited for three hours and there was no explanation. And I was one of the people they 
uh, pulled aside. And when you look at those people who are pulled aside, you could clearly see that these people are brown, these people are black, these people are either had had head scars or like they they apparently are not white or rich look rich or um, they are not privileged so this is one of the first moments probably i mean growing up in turkey of course i knew that i and i i've seen that i've been treated that way because i visited the united states before and of course they put me because of my headscarf and this wasn't like the first moment but this was the first moment where i was going there as a student and just my friend having an Erasmus exchange agreement and me not having that even that like changed the whole experience for both of us and they did i asked for an explanation they did not say anything they just kept saying that they they think that I'm not gonna be safe out there, so because I don't have enough money or something. But I had, so I don't know. At first, uh, I wasn't really questioning the system itself. Like during my master's studentship, I was when I noticed that I'm like other students are perhaps more ready to do what's been asked of them during the, the degree, or when they go ahead and i don't know like engage in activities more easily more readily i was just asking myself and telling that oh i'm not that uh, comfortable i'm not that strong i'm not that knowledgeable about this issue uh, about this stuff but uh, after i began my phd i changed my, my perspective i think because before that in academia I was always questioning myself and my abilities, saying that I lack those abilities because they are better than me. I'm not that good because I I did not study enough or I did not engage in those activities enough, like something like that. But after I began my PhD, I stopped and began to challenge the system, I think. Like I said, for instance, during my uh, master's degree, I I was questioning myself, and I I I had I did not have confidence in myself because you're currently being undermined, and you began to believe others' believe others' thoughts about yourself. People expect you to not perfect in anything. People just, uh, although they do, they might not do it intentionally, but still, like when there's an job opening or when there's something else like uh, that you can do extra they always go to the people who are from the global north they either do it intentionally or not intentionally i believe uh, language is another barrier because they they just think that oh that's easy for that other person because they already know about this stuff but that's the problem they already know about this stuff and I don't and I want to learn, but I'm not giving the same opportunity as them. So that affects your well-being a lot. Also your confidence, because like I said, after I began my PhD, I began to question and I was lucky that I like in my PhD, I had friends that are like me and we kept talking to each other. We kept supporting each other. But I know lots of people who did not have that support group in their PhDs. And it affected their well-being a lot. The other problem is, uh, like when, uh, when I began my PhD and started to notice that this isn't about me, this is about the system, uh, I was also having like friends who are just beginning their MSCs. And when I talked to them, I can see that they were blaming themselves. They were not questioning the system. So you need time to see that that isn't about you. These problems are not about you. And these issues cannot be just solved by you studying harder or doing more work than others. But till that point, you question yourself and that, that decreases your well-being, that decreases your grades or performance in other, any other activities. So sports groups are really important in that sense. 
and they i think mm, even if you become aware of, of these issues you still get to feel like like you still get get to be affected by them because like right now I'm, i consider myself being aware of these issues but i can still see the barriers and there are some days that i like i don't have any energy to do anything because you see the system you try to change but you also see the resistance from it and there are people who are trying to like keep the system as it is because they believe there's nothing wrong with it so it can be very hard to do this right now but i don't know how to like as a social psychologist i don't know how to solve uh, or how to support uh, your well-being a lot i will just say having a good friend uh, or good supportive uh, group in at your university or even just the right now we are doing everything online so having a support group is the only thing to keep you going but it doesn't solve anything because like when you talk to universities they don't say that oh if there is this problem we are going to solve this they instead of that they say that oh there is this problem then we are going to show you how you can cope with this problem so i'm kind of sick of like people teaching me coping strategies rather than just changing or fixing the problem but yeah like i said um, like in order for people uh, from global north to learn about these issues we need to be speak more about these issues because like there is not even an organized response about that. I, I mean, there are lots of uh, groups or initiatives that work on this issue, that uh, like they they try to make these issues aware or more apparent for everyone. But uh, the problem is, you need to make your voice heard by global uh, not. Because there are lots of lots of people like discussing this issue in Turkey or in Brazil or in other countries, but if you don't go out and tell those people from global north that this is an important issue, it's not going to be heard. But then comes the uh, second problem. Even if you go out and tell them, they don't care because it's not affecting them. So you need to, I think we need to find a way to like make this issue a central issue to academia and the production of academic knowledge. Now with the replication crisis and everything, people started to realize that, um, I don't know if you're familiar with replication crisis in social psychology, most of the data are collected from um, weird countries, like global North countries. So then people realize that, oh, with this data, we cannot predict human behavior because it's just like American people. So then they started to collect data from all around the world. And although this changed a little bit of perspective, I think we need to do something like that to show that this knowledge that is produced as a result of years of uh, experience or studies these are just the ones uh, produced in Global North, and these are the ones which are highlighted over the years. But there are still lots of knowledge produced in the Global South that are just being disregarded. So we need to, I don't know, find a way to put ourselves uh, there and show them that there's something else going on here, and we, you need to care about this otherwise your knowledge is going to be missing at the end. Yeah. And would you say people of color, people of uh, different religion, people with headscarf, women are third country nationals. They're more discriminated in the sense than uh, white third country nationals. Would you make such different differentiation? Well, I wouldn't say white people are discriminated at all. Like, because I know that they... Mm, they talk about this, but uh, you cannot not discriminate uh, people who have power. 
either they are aware or are not about these issues, uh, are not aware about these issues. Uh, like we cannot discriminate, like you can maybe behave differently, but whatever we do, like if you don't have the power, you cannot discriminate. So uh, I would say I, I couldn't compare the level of discrimination among minority groups, but um, I I would definitely not make a comparison between white people and uh, white people and non-white people because like I cannot even imagine like because we had this discussion in one of our conferences uh, when. Uh, a white professor was talking about like minority issues as minorities. We we told him that this isn't the way it works, and we kind of challenged him. And he got offended and kept saying that he was he is being discriminated right now because he is talking about minority issues uh, as a white professor. But that wasn't it. Like what he identified as discrimination was not at all related to discrimination. So I wouldn't say white people are being discriminated. It all depends on the context, I think. Because like when you go to a conference in Turkey where there are lots of people with headscarf, um, I don't think that I will be discriminated as uh, someone with a headscarf. But uh, if I go to another conference in Turkey where there are lots of, where there are no people, there's no people with headscarf, uh, except myself and I know that they are not uh, looking people with headscarf the positive attitude I might be discriminated but it doesn't mean that um, wherever I go I will be discriminated like I wouldn't want to use this but it also depends on your um, reason uh, for being a minority because like headscarf is my choice whereas like black, black people are black people, they cannot uh, hide this. Wherever they go, it will be obvious. Uh, my headscarf will be the same as well. But being like a first generation university student is not something everyone can show. So we actually don't know uh, what kind of identities people hold. We just need to make sure that we academia is a place that's open to everyone, open to every perspective. Uh, coming from any background, because we wouldn't even like we will, we shouldn't just need to show that we have this identity to be included in this discussion. Challenging the passport privilege. This podcast is produced at Central European University in Vienna, Austria. 